Live from the Fremont Theater in Portland, Oregon, it's Portland Story Theater's special Valentine's Day show, Kiss and Tell. May the narrative be with you. All right. Um, throughout my life, on many occasions, I have had friends come and ask me to give them advice or my opinions on matters of love. Afterwards, I always end up asking myself, why did they come to Warren? <laughs> After my story tonight, you're probably going to ask yourself the same question. <laughs> why would they go to Warren? Because I am no expert in love. Um, <laughs> no expert in love. Even now, people still ask me, uh, Warren, how have you done this? Uh, how do you have such a happy marriage? How did you trick your wife into falling in love with you? And I have an answer, and it's very simple, and here it is. Luck. Let me explain. I grew up in the world of sports, and in sports, luck is defined as hard work and preparation meeting opportunity. Every success I had in sports was because I worked harder or I was more prepared than my opponent, and when the opportunity presented itself, I seized it. In other words, I made my own luck. Now, this worked out so well that I decided to take this philosophy and apply it to other areas of my life, including my love relationships. Because it was important for me to be successful in love. When I was four years old, my uh, biological father left our family, he abandoned us, and at that young age, I vowed that it was going to be different for me. When I got older, I was going to get married, and it was going to be forever. Yeah. At four years old, I became a connubialist. Do you guys know what a connubialist is? No, of course you don't, because I just made that word up. <laughs> I define a connubialist as somebody who's constantly making steps towards getting married. That is their ultimate goal. So that meant if I liked you, someday I was going to love you. If I chose you, that meant someday we were going to get married. If I went on a date with you, that was the first date of us being together for the rest of our lives. Yeah, now, I could tell some people in the crowd felt a little bit uncomfortable with that. <laughs> Imagine that guy who also thinks that if he just works harder and is just better prepared, he can have all the success he wants. He can make his own luck and love. All he needed was an opportunity. I found my opportunities dating my friend's sisters. Because what's more opportune than a girl who's kind of always around and her brother likes you already anyway? <laughs> Needless to say, I had many, many unhealthy relationships. <laughs> I'm here to tell you tonight about my last bad relationship. Her name was Alice, and her brother's name was Anthony. Now, in order for you to understand my relationship with Alice, you kind of have to know about what was going on with me and Anthony. And you also have to know and acknowledge the fact that there is a war going on in this world between two groups of people, the techies and the fluffies. <laughs> the techies are people who study the hard sciences. You know, they're the econ majors and the business majors and the computer scientists and the engineers. And the fluffies are people in the humanities. They're writers and artists and English majors. <laughs> now, Anthony was a techie, and I... Emma Fluffy. And I guess we were friends, if techies and fluffies can really be friends in this world. But mostly he was just a guy who was a teammate of mine on my college wrestling team. 
And so when I first started dating Alice, his sister, uh, he was not too excited about this. And I expected that because, like I said, in the past, I had some experience dating friends and sisters. It was frowned upon, um, evidently. But Anthony was really set on making our relationship a bumpy road, as if our relationship needed more bumps. It was already not going well anyway. So six months into our relationship, Alice was running a marathon in Nashville, Tennessee. And being a connubialist and uh, being prepared to be her husband someday, I knew I had to fly out there and support her. So I did. Anthony came along, and uh, the night before the race, he and I went out, had many beers, and got drunk like 22-year-olds are prone to do. The next morning we woke up, Alice had gone to the race, and uh, we woke up, and in a frenzy, we put on our socks and shoes, and we ran down to the starting line, and the race had just begun, and I, I saw Alice in the crowd, and I, I jumped in next to her, and I ran that first mile, encouraging her the whole way, still drunk, I was still very drunk, <laughs> encouraging her, telling her you should do it, that one mile turned into two miles, and then four miles, and pretty soon I was eight miles into this thing, and this is where I sobered up. And I thought, well, I've gone this far. I might as well just keep going the rest of the way. So I ran the 26.2 miles, a third of it drunk, which was probably the easiest part. And that night, Alice came to me and she said, you know, uh, my parents were really impressed with what you did. You know, they always thought you were kind of lazy, but after seeing what you did today, they, they know you can be a hard worker. Now, being a canubialist, I should have been overjoyed because... Anyone who knows anything knows that the parents have to like you for any marriage to work. But I couldn't get past that second part about them thinking I was lazy. I was the captain of my college wrestling team. Wrestling is like the hardest sport. I was excelling in university, one of the, the most prestigious universities in the country. In my mind, I was the definition of hard worker. I couldn't understand how these people thought I was lazy and how it took a marathon for them to think highly of me. Well, it turns out that Anthony had been taking his alternative facts <laughs> and he was sabotaging me to the parents. He was telling them that I was lazy and that at school all I did was read and write papers. He told them I was a fluffy and that when I graduated I was not going to get a high-paying job. There's no way I could support a family. He basically told them that I was going to amount to nothing. Cut me real deep just then. I know. I know. Well, but I had that marathon. I thought, you know, maybe if every couple months I run a marathon, I can keep them liking me just enough so that this marriage can happen someday. Well, six months went by, and I didn't run any more marathons. Um, and Alice and I's relationship got really bumpy. She, uh, she cheated on me which I let slide because I'm so committed. I was all about the end game, that marriage. She started drinking a lot. Um, she drank so much that I had to make a choice to stop drinking because one of us had to stay sober. But I thought, you know what? Someday, this is just a phase, someday we'll be married and this will all be behind us. And then she started getting really aggressive. We would go out places and she would try and start fights with random people in bars. And I was having to babysit her every time we went out. It kind of started feeling like a job, but I would not quit because I'm not a quitter. I figured I just had to work harder. Well, after six months, we graduated, and uh, Alice got a job in Rhode Island, and I had a choice to make. I could cut my losses, be unsuccessful in love once again, 
stay here in Portland. Or I could move with her to Rhode Island. The choice was actually not that hard. I was 23 years old, I wasn't getting any younger, and my canubialist clock was ticking like this over here. <laughs> so I packed up all my stuff in my car and I moved to Rhode Island. We had been living together for a couple weeks and one night we got in a huge fight. She wanted to go into New York City to visit her brother Anthony and I didn't really want to go. Last time we went in to visit him, uh, we went out to a bar, she had too much to drink, she tried to pick a fight with somebody, I had to carry her home back to Anthony's apartment where he had no furniture except the bed in his room. So we had to sleep on the hardwood floor. Well, I slept, she passed out on the hardwood floor. I did not want to do that again, so I told her, you know what, you're going to have to count me out on this trip. She said, you know what, you're not strong enough for me. I need somebody who's going to sleep on the floor. You are weak. And she broke up with me. So, I know, I know. So I packed up all my stuff in my car and I drove back to the West Coast, to Portland. Ashamed, a failure, once again, unlucky in love. I moved into my mom's house, actually into her garage, where I lived like a monk for seven years. I matured in those seven years. A lot changed. I learned to love myself. Um, I got tired of the act, and um, I realized, you know, I'm a good guy, even if I don't want to sleep on the floor, or, you know, if I don't want to run more than one marathon. I'm still quality people. Um, I also dropped the whole canubialist idea. I still wanted to get married, but so there was something about forcing it, about trying to make my own luck that just wasn't vibing. And there's nothing wrong with working hard and being prepared. It's just I had to take a different approach. And I came out that seven years, I met Smitha, who's now my wife. We met when we were both opponents on a game show. So people hear that and they think, oh, there's the luck you're talking about. That's why you're lucky. And I guess, I mean, I worked hard to get on that game show. And uh, I was very well prepared. So was Smitha. And when we had the opportunity in front of us, we both seized it together. So that's not really the luck I think of. For me, the luck is what I had with Alice and before her Beth, and before her Emily, and Amy, and Jen, and Jill, and the other Beth. It was, it was all those relationships I had that were unsuccessful. Those times I felt the unluckiest, that was the real luck. That was luck saving me from myself. And now, I have my forever person, and she's the right person, and I feel like the luckiest guy in the world. Thank you.